They don't actually care that she's black or female. They care about putting a true believer on the bench. And they're gonna do it. Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this premium episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about incoming Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Jackson will not change the ideological makeup of the court, and her most important opinions will be dissents. But she will be a reliable liberal vote on most issues. So the lingering question is whether she will use her position to outline a bold progressive vision of the law, or if the hosts of this podcast will have to continue doing that. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have hunted our civil rights to extinction like the Russian government did to the Caspian Tiger. Wow. Sad. Pour one out for the Caspian Tiger. Is it white? It's not white. I don't think they would have hunted it down if it was white. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in the, uh, it was like 50s or 60s, they were like clearing land by the uh, Caspian Sea and the government ordered uh, the military to kill tigers on site for safety reasons. So there went the Caspian tiger. It's fucked up. And that's why Ukraine flag in the bio for me, you know? (laughs) You know, I was on the fence about should we be sending weapons to Ukraine, but... (laughs) But now. (laughs) So today, special episode, we are talking about Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. She is, of course, the latest addition to the Supreme Court bench, having been sworn in on June 30th, 2022, replacing Stephen Breyer. Bye-bye. And as the October 2022 term of the Supreme Court kicks off, we thought it might be useful to talk about her, talk about her body of work as a judge, about the critiques she's faced from both sides, and what we expect to see from her and what we hope to see from her. So, Re, a little personal life, little little professional history, maybe? Is that what we're doing? Yeah. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Katanji Brown-Jackson before she was a Supreme Court justice. So, up top, gotta get it out of the way. Need to say this. Maybe the most important thing about her. She is a Virgo. She's a Virgo <laughs> like me, like Beyonce. These are all incredibly important people, the three of us, Virgos. Uh, and my mom, too. Oh, Michael's mom. Hello. Born on September 11th. Ignomious birthday. Aww. Listen, it was her birthday first. That's right. All right. So Katanji Brown Jackson spends most of her childhood in Florida, where she went to public schools and ends up graduating from Miami Palmetto High School. Her parents were both public school teachers, but actually her dad eventually went to law school himself, and he ended up being the chief attorney for the Miami-Dade County School Board. Her mom eventually became an administrator for public schools and ended her career as a school principal. Now, Katanji Brown-Jackson was class president in high school. She was also a star debater. Yeah, real cool. Real cool stuff. Mm -hmm. Lots of nerd cred. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) She did undergrad at Harvard, graduated magna cum laude, and then spent a year before she went to law school. She actually worked as a reporter and a researcher at Time magazine. Mm -hmm. Then she went to Harvard Law. 
So Amy Howe at, at SCOTUS blog notes that before Katanji Brown-Jackson was ever a judge, in the 17 years following her graduation from law school, KBJ, quote, attained three federal clerkships, worked at four elite law firms, and served two stints with the Sentencing Commission. She clerked for Stephen Breyer mm-hmm. during the 1999 to 2000 term. And during some major culture war stuff reached the Supreme Court. There was Stenberg v. Carhartt, which is a case that Breyer wrote the majority opinion for. That was about um, later term abortions. There's a case called Santa Fe ISD v. Doe. That was about student initiated prayers at school and how that violated the Establishment Clause. And then there was also during that term the case Boy Scouts v. Dale. We had an early episode about, about Boy Scouts v. Dale. In that case, the Supreme Court said that the state could not force the Boy Scouts to accept a gay man as scoutmaster. Right. It now seems pretty common that justices are being replaced with their own former clerks. Yeah. It happened with Kavanaugh, too. Right. It just kind of creeps me out a little bit. It just feels like it couldn't possibly be that there's no influence from the outgoing judge in these situations. Right. That's what it feels like. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a way to like ease the pain of retirement right. or whatever. Right. It's like, well, it's one of your protégés yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that is filling in for you. But it, it sort of somehow makes this feel even less democratic and right. more sort of aristocratic, right? Like it's like their seat to pass down right. yeah. to whom they choose, right? It feels very monarchist or mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know. Right, right. So after she clerked at the Supreme Court, she worked at a couple of different law firms and then she was assistant special counsel at the Sentencing Commission. After that, she did something pretty unique for a top Washington, D.C. lawyer, someone who had clerked at the Supreme Court already. And it's pretty unique for somebody kind of in the middle of their career. She decided to work as a public defender in D.C. in 2005. And sort of a personal note, she had an uncle who was serving a life sentence on federal drug charges at the time. She referred her uncle to a Washington law firm that wrote a clemency petition on her uncle's behalf. And um, President Obama ended up commuting the uncle's sentence. And the uncle was released at age 78 after serving more than 25 years. So just like kind of a personal connection to the way criminal law operates in this country for a lot of people. KBJ is not sort of untouched by that, right? In 2007, she left the public defender office. She returned to private practice. And then again, uh, she worked at the Sentencing Commission because President Obama nominated her to the position of vice chair. Finally, in 2012, Obama nominated her to serve as a federal district judge in D.C., and she spent seven years as a trial judge before being nominated to the D.C. Circuit, where she was confirmed in 2021 before, of course, being nominated to the Supreme Court this year. So we should start talking about what she's done on the bench, the hopes that maybe that can tell us a little bit about what type of justice she'd be. Yeah. Working in the D.C. Circuit, both as a district court and appellate court judge, uh, she had a lot of cases dealing with administrative law. Those cases mostly happen in D.C. 
Administrative law we haven't talked about a lot on the podcast, but basically when you're in like fifth grade or whatever, you learn that there are three branches of government, which are the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, right? I'm following. Congress writes the laws, the president enforces the laws, and the courts interpret the laws and the constitution. That's a pretty incomplete picture. The administrative state does a huge amount of governance And what that is are these agencies that are created by Congress, by congressional statute, that can exercise legislative power. They can write things that have the force of law called regulations, but are managed by the executive branch. Uh, So they move much quicker than Congress does. They can do a lot, uh, you know, on food standards, emission standards, things like that, the FDA, the EPA, et cetera. Right. So that's the administrative state. There is a ton of litigation around it all the time. And the big question usually is how deferential judges are Mm -hmm. to the agencies. How much do judges want to get into the business of writing regulations themselves, telling the agencies uh, what to do. What the scope of agency authority is, right? Right. Like in in, um, West Virginia, the EPA. Exactly. So on that topic, I found her to be pretty middle of the road, yeah. <laughs> yeah. pretty unremarkable. She deferred to the agency sometimes, but not always. She did uh, strike down some agency action and say some stuff was like, you know, outside the scope of agency power. Notably, she did explicitly say she does not believe in the non-delegation doctrine that it's a historical and not uh, rooted in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising that she would think that, given that that is a very arch conservative position that's held by, what, two or three justices on the Supreme Court right now? Um, it's a completely fringe uh, opinion that's only held by half the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the non delegation doctrine, this is going to be something that's coming up. It's related to something we've talked about in recent episodes called the major questions doctrine. But the question is the degree to which Congress can delegate its lawmaking abilities, its lawmaking powers to the executive branch. Right. Right. Like, can Congress say, yeah, we're creating the EPA and it can issue regulations with the force of law? Like, can it do that at all? And if so, under, you know, what sort of constraints, how narrow can that delegation or broad can that delegation be? Conservatives like to say that basically this is, uh, that the administrative state itself is pretty much entirely or mostly unconstitutional, an unconstitutional delegation of congressional authority. This is a way to totally kneecap the federal government and regulations. Mm -hmm. The fact that a liberal justice would not be a fan of this is unsurprising. The fact that one that maybe had some aspirations for for higher court would be pretty explicit about being like that's some that's some bullshit yeah i think it's encouraging that she will maybe on these issues not be shy Mm -hmm. about calling out like gorsuch in particular i think is pretty extreme like very extreme yeah yes and 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 it'll be good to have hopefully a a strong voice in opposition there was also like there's a little bit of chatter online when she was nominated about her having some weak spots on labor and employment issues. The criticism came up when UW Clement, former judge and the first 
black federal judge in Alabama, wrote a letter to the White House opposing her nomination. And it was on the basis that she was not properly committed to workplace justice. The reason he gave was a single case, Ross v. Lockheed, which was a class action brought by 5,500 black Lockheed Martin employees alleging racial discrimination within the company. Yeah. Parties reached a settlement where Lockheed would pay $22 million and have to make changes to their internal pay and promotion policies. But class action settlements require court approval. Jackson rejected it. And part of the basis for that was that the plaintiffs did not specify how Lockheed's policies were systematically discriminatory. So Clemen latched onto that and a couple of other procedural items and says, well, you know, she lacks a commitment to workplace justice. Now, I think in a vacuum, I agree that that part of her ruling, while maybe not atrocious, is not very worker friendly. Yeah. But a couple of things. First of all, Clemen was the lawyer for the plaintiffs. So <laughs> right. <laughs> like maybe a little bit biased here, in part because she's functionally criticizing the quality of his firm's work, right? Like the legal complaint that they drafted right. is at issue there. And also like that settlement would have banked them like six or seven mil <laughs> as a law firm, you know? Right. They usually yeah. get a third. Of t- I mean, it, it can vary in, in uh, class actions. So, you know, okay. I I want to take his claim on the merits, but those are notable, <laughs> notable caveats here. Mm-hmm. More substantively, though, he omits the other things that Jackson said in her decision, including that she felt the proposed settlement was too unclear about how much money each class member would receive, that the release they were agreeing to was too broad, and that the proposed burden on class members to respond to the settlement notice was too great, all of which are concerns about whether this was fair to the workers. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I sort of want to defer to Clement in some ways because he's involved in the case. It's possible that she was giving the plaintiffs a hard time here in a way that, you know, he rightfully felt was unfair. But from what I could see, I didn't feel like it was indicative of like a broad lack of concern for workers' rights. Right, right. She's not anti-labor ideologically, right? Right. That, That wasn't the sense I got. Um, Now, if you look at her other cases, it's a mixed bag. Plenty of good stuff. Most notably, she struck down multiple Trump executive orders on the basis that they undermined the collective bargaining rights of federal employees. In various sort of standalone employment discrimination and retaliation cases, she held in favor of employers pretty often to the point where some management side employment firms were sort of circulating the word that like, She's not so bad. Like, as far as liberal judges go, she's not that bad. Yeah. Um, I read a few of them. My broad takeaway is that it's not that she has animosity towards workers or anything, but that she's just very formalistic. The existing rules in workplace and employment law favor employers, and she's a rule follower. That was sort of the sense I got there. Yeah. I've also handled enough cases to know when someone is heavily biased towards employers, and I just didn't see it here. There are several types of claims made by employees that conservative judges will just toss out, but that she allowed to proceed in many instances. So, yeah, I I come out of here feeling like I'm not quite sure. I don't I certainly don't think that she is like pro-management in some material way. She might surprise us when she hits the court, but 
if I had to guess, she'll be just sort of like reliably liberal, but not a trailblazer. You know, I guess the opposite side of the coin is, you know, yeah, I didn't feel like she had animosity towards workers, but I didn't feel like she had any strong feelings that like the current jurisprudence on employment discrimination was unjust, you know? Sure. And you never know, right? When someone hits the the top of the food chain, uh, sometimes they sort of shift Mm -hmm. course. But I would be a little bit surprised based on what I've read. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, your assessment there, Peter, in in terms of labor, the rights of employees, that's kind of my assessment in the immigration context, too, that she is sort of maybe above all pretty formalistic, is looking at the rules, is looking at um, the jurisprudence that's there already and and tailoring her decisions kind of really narrowly based on, you know, all this uh, uh, formal structure, right? So three significant cases on immigration that she ruled on while she was in the D.C. circuit. The first case is called Make the Road New York v. McAleenan. In that case, she ruled that the Department of Homeland Security could not expand the category of undocumented immigrants who would be subject to what's called fast-track deportations, right? This is a pro-immigrant good decision where she says that the expansion of this category, this category of immigrants that could be deported very quickly, that expansion is arbitrary. Arbitrary and it violated the Administrative Procedure Act. So, you know, it, it seems that she has an eye for the government sort of uh, arbitrarily changing categories, designations for undocumented immigrants that would unjustly hurt them or put them on a, on a faster track to deportation. In another case called Kayakumba v. Wolf, She ruled again in favor of undocumented immigrants. Here, it has to do with asylees, people seeking asylum in the United States. One of the first steps in qualifying for asylum in the U.S. is establishing that you have what's called a credible fear, a credible fear of being returned to your country. At the time, what what happened in this case is that the Trump administration heightened the standards for what constitutes a credible fear. That makes it harder for asylees to to show that that they did have this credible fear, a fear of actual harm should they be returned to their country. And KBJ struck it down. She says the new criteria were not authorized by Congress and the Department of Homeland Security can't just make up these new rules without going through the proper procedure. So again, that's ruling on the side of, of undocumented immigrants, of, of asylees, but see again that it's quite technical. What she's saying is the Department of Homeland Security didn't go through the proper procedure to change those rules. And then another case that has to do with immigration, it also has to do with environmental law. She ruled the other way. She ruled with the Trump administration, and this had to do with the border wall. So this case is called Center for Biological Diversity versus McAleenan again. And in that case, the Trump administration had waived certain environmental laws in order to expedite building the border wall. And the plaintiffs here, environmental organizations, 
organizations were challenging this. And KBJ dismissed the lawsuit filed by those environmental groups saying that Congress had precluded judicial review of the plaintiff's claim. Mm -hmm. So there she's saying that Congress actually took away the possibility of judicial review. And I found it disconcerting that the last page of that opinion was just build that wall in all caps written over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So she's not saying, you know, that she supported the border wall or that the Trump administration should go forward with building the border wall, but only that, you know, the way the plaintiffs brought this lawsuit, there's no judicial review. So she couldn't rule on on the plaintiff's claim, right? Yeah. And this was the case. This was the non-delegation case, too. Exactly. I think the environmental groups thought they were being clever, bringing like a conservative argument about an impermissible delegation of authority here. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she was like, no, non-delegation is garbage. And I'm not going to. They got a bad draw of judge uh, (laughs) for that argument. Right. Exactly. We should also talk about one of her biggest cases, the Committee on Judiciary, uh, V. McGahn, which is from just a couple years ago when Donald Trump was still president, but Democrats had taken control of Congress and controlled the Judiciary Mm -hmm. Committee and were subpoenaing Don McGahn to testify before them. They were doing their oversight functions and and investigation functions. And Trump said, no. And McGahn said, no, they said they are not going to send McGahn to testify. He was a White House counsel, former White House counsel at the time. Trump claimed, you know, all sorts of privilege and, and all this crap. So Democrats took him to court and said, look, we've subpoenaed you pursuant to our you know, constitutional and statutory powers, and you have to comply with those subpoenas. So this was like a big separation of powers question about like, does Congress have the power to subpoena high presidential aides, executive branch aides? Mm-hmm. Do those aides have to comply with the subpoenas? And do courts even have authority to, you know, resolve these disputes? Or is that like a purely political question? Yeah. I thought her opinion was was excellent. It's very long. <laughs> um, She's known for long opinions, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I spent a long time reading it, but I thought it was like thorough, well-reasoned, she concluded that, yes, while, you know, McGahn, one, sitting in testimony, you know, might be able to claim some stuff is subject to executive privilege and he won't answer questions. He has to comply with his subpoenas. Yes, the federal courts can resolve these issues. And yes, McGahn has to go sit and he has to go testify. I thought was was interesting is that there was like some precedent on this in the D.C. Circuit. And she opens by describing that precedent, which is very similar circumstances, a out party controlling Congress, subpoenaing, you know, the opposition party's aides, White House counsel, and that that White House, you know, saying, shove it, fuck you, they're not testifying before you. And those facts are George Bush in 2008 with our pod friend Harriet Myers, White House counsel, Uh being subpoenaed and well-known warmonger John Bolton, man of an amazing mustache, Mm -hmm. (laughs) both subpoenaed by Congress in 2008. And so she starts by describing these facts and then says, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Here we are 10 years later and we're seeing 11 years later, we're seeing the same exact conflict play out. 
And, and then she goes on to describe the Trump stuff as like, you're not a fucking king, mm-hmm. right? In academic terms, like she says, literally the power of the monarchy is split among the three branches. Like you don't get to just do whatever you want. You have to answer to the other, the other two branches. Yeah. But it's interesting when read together because it's like someone who's basically saying the Trump administration here is acting like an autocrat. And by the way, George Bush did the exact same autocratic shit. Exactly. You know, it's done in a, in a way that like, I don't find to be partisan, you know, flame throwing or anything, but nonetheless, when you read it, it's hard to come away with any other conclusion than, yeah, this is just like some Republican autocratic bullshit. And it's the same bullshit from not too long ago, which is encouraging. I find very encouraging that maybe her view of the way Republicans treat executive Mm -hmm. power Mm -hmm. in the courts is uh, a little more clear-eyed than your run-of-the-mill centrist lib uh, these days. Yeah. She got overturned, by the way, on this by a pretty conservative panel, and then the D.C. Circuit went en banc, which is when uh, Circuit Court of Appeals recalls a panel opinion and every circuit court judge sits in all whatever 15 18 of them however many it is on the on the circuit decide and they overrule the panel mcgann i think ended up testifying in a negotiated settlement and it all became kind of moot and like the supreme court denied cert and all that so yeah. she ultimately was like vindicated on this right but uh, i think also worth noting that like conservative hacks on the DC yeah. circuit, we're ready to go to the to the mat here, yeah. which is itself its own form of education mm-hmm. on what right wing judges are right now. So I, I don't know. Reading this, I came away from this maybe a little optimistic about her view of partisan politics, like her understanding of Republican politics. Yeah, yeah. And before we move on, I think we should say, like, you know, these are sort of slightly more obscure areas of her jurisprudence. She's a PD. Mm-hmm. Her comments about criminal law related to sentencing commission she was on and in other areas make it pretty clear that she's going to be pretty solid. Yes. <laughs> like if she came out as a um, mediocre liberal vote on criminal law, I would be shocked. There are other areas like voting rights that are just sort of like, there's just not a lot of internal liberal wrangling on those issues, you know? Yeah. Especially because the nature of the challenges right now are so so conservative and it's like exactly and then you know you have like reproductive rights things like affirmative action etc like a lot of these hot button issues she's going to be perfectly fine at the least if not particularly good in some areas so just want to sort of note that before we move on but also want to note like from the left like she's no radical right (laughs) i think Mm -hmm. you said it earlier peter like she seems to be very good on some issues she seems to be very formalistic and meticulous in her statutory and constitutional analysis Mm -hmm. but that said who knows but it doesn't seem like she would be a radical trailblazer on really any issue no i agree although the caveat is that a lot of judges are a little more formalistic when they're like on the district court because you might get overturned. That's right. right? And so you want to like check all your boxes. But yeah, I mean, if she's going to be 
someone who's a little more ambitious, we haven't really seen it. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about her confirmation and the sort of controversies around her. We're in 2022 and all of politics gravitates towards the dumbest common denominator. So the big issue (laughs) in her confirmation hearing was whether she had a history of being soft on pedophile sex crimes. (laughs) Yeah. The fact that this comes from a party where like Matt Gates is currently in good standing, despite like openly being under investigation for having sex with underage. Right. Right. I mean, Dennis Hastert, like that was like 15 years ago. (laughs) Speaker of the House, right? Right. And an actual pedophile. Like He was convicted, right? He was convicted of paying for the silence of his victims. That's right. Yeah. Oh, right. The statute of limitations had run. On the, on the actual pedophilia. On the actual pedophilia he did, the statute of limitations had run, yes. Right. So they got him for evading bank regulations. <laughs> right. Because they couldn't get him for the actual pedophilia he did. <laughs> that he did, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, a party um, teaming with pedophiles is what we're saying. Yes. If you're a Republican, yes. you are a pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> So Josh Hawley, uh, Republican senator from Missouri, famous mostly for uh, saluting the January 6th protesters and then running like an absolute bitch when they breached the Capitol. (laughs) He brought up the case of Wesley Hawkins, an 18-year-old convicted of possession of child pornography, who Jackson supposedly gave a light sentence uh, below the federal guidelines. We don't have to go into details here, but complex case. Hawley himself has voted to confirm judges who gave very comparable sentences in similar cases. He completely mischaracterized um, the findings of the sentencing commission that she was on, claiming that they recommended softer penalties for child porn possession. By the way, the sentencing commission is like comprised of people from both sides of the aisle, et cetera, like they operate on consensus. Mm-hmm. Not to mention it wasn't true. They they advocated for like more nuanced penalties, harsher in some cases, softer in others. For example, like possession by a child of their own quote unquote child porn, right? Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of like li- weird little nuances here. So we don't have to get into this too deeply. Suffice it to say that this is just like a bullshit political hit job that you have yeah. many prominent people on the right attacking her for this. But the hit job was so brutal that others came out in support of her. Republican judges who mm-hmm. worked beside her on the sentencing commission supported her. Andrew McCarthy, conservative pundit, published like a full defense of her in the National Review. Which is wild because he's a fucking hack. Right. Yeah. Just a, a, an absolute psycho. So, But maybe a pedophile. <laughs> he was like, let's not get crazy about sentencing for ch- child porn. <laughs> that is rank speculation. No, no, yeah. not an accusation. Yeah. I want to be clear. What did Lionel Hutt say in The Simpsons? Uh, we have plenty of hearsay and conjecture. Those are kinds of evidence. <laughs> <laughs> they might not be admissible, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, obviously this hit job doesn't work, right? She gets confirmed. And it's not a critique worth entertaining on the merits. But I bring it up because it's like one of the more visceral examples of like the QAnonification of Republican politics, right? Mm-hmm. They could have just portrayed her as soft on crime, right? Which actually might have been politically effective given concerns about street crime these days. But instead, they brought up pedophiles specifically because they wanted to throw red meat to their 
actually clinically unwell base by right. winking mm-hmm. at all of these conspiracy theories. Right, exactly. Yeah. Another critique that she kind of had to address uh, during the confirmation hearings was about her history as a public defender. It's the same old tired bullshit illogical, inaccurate bullshit that every public defender hears, which is basically boils down to how can you represent those people, Mm -hmm. right? How can you Mm -hmm. defend somebody who is accused of committing a serious crime? Of course, this is foundational to our legal system, ensuring the rights of of the accused. But yeah, she did did have to address this in the confirmation hearings. I want to say Lindsey Graham was one of the ones making a big deal about this and also brought up that as in private practice, after she was a public defender, KBJ practiced for an appellate law firm and in her role there wrote, I believe, a brief on behalf of a Guantanamo detainee. So Lindsey Graham made a really big, uh, really big deal about that, that she had defended a terrorist. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think I think she responded well to this in the confirmation hearings, you know, just sort of explaining in a really basic way, like Lindsey Graham was five years old, what it means to defend somebody who's accused of crimes in the system, that this kind of role is is crucial and important. And that doing that kind of work taught her important things about being a lawyer, about representing people, about who clients are. Why couldn't you take a morally respectable job like defending Exxon for blasting seals in the face with crude oil? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just this really dumb that there are good law jobs and bad law jobs. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's a totally upside down framework. Right. Whenever someone is like representing Goldman for a living, it's like. Well, you know, everyone's entitled to make a living and uh, Goldman right. is entitled to, to lawyers. And we salute you, sir. Yep. Yeah. Please invite me to your house in the Hamptons. <laughs> yeah. But represent someone accused of murder for fucking no money. And everyone's like, oh, yeah. you're representing a mean guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You help cover up pedophilia and sex crimes in this college where you work in the university where you're working with sports programs. You get to be a Republican congressman. Right. You defend in court people accused of doing those things, and you are shunned for life. That's right. That's right. Okay, so why don't we talk about what we're um, optimistic about and pessimistic about, right? Sure. And we've covered a lot of this. You know, I think it's hard not to be a little bit optimistic, at least. She's replacing Breyer, Mm -hmm. right, who had some significant glaring weaknesses in his jurisprudence, especially around criminal law, where we can expect her to be strong. And the court is in a place where the gap between even a moderate liberal and the conservatives is just massive, right? Just massive. Yeah. Right. Like there's there's no world where Jackson isn't solid on voting rights, uh, on reproductive rights, like we said, right? On the other hand, her lower court jurisprudence, very formalistic, right? Like Ree said, known for these lengthy, comprehensive methodological opinions. Again, maybe that was a calculated move, Mm -hmm. but important to note, the conservatives on this court can't be convinced, right? They can't be chastised. They can't be shamed. Mm -hmm. At least not on important issues. Right. And during times of political polarization, you can't hope to compel the other side, whether it be the justices or like the broader conservative political body Mm. with like logic and sophistication, right? Right. Yeah. So I think it would be a little disappointing if we got another Kagan here. 
a sharp jurist, very smart, but sort of unable to let go of legal formalism as her primary mode of of analysis. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. You know, Dahlia Lithwick had a piece during the confirmation hearings about KBJ's weakness also being her greatest strength. And that is that KBJ does not have a career as a political operative first, right? Mm -hmm. She was a lawyer and a lawyer in elite spaces, a lawyer at a zealous public defender office. And then she was a judge and was doing the work of being a federal district court judge for years, right? Mm -hmm. So Lithwick says as part of this lack of a career as a political operative first, say like a Brett Kavanaugh, like Mm -hmm. Justice John Roberts, who worked in the Reagan administration. And so that sort of hindered KBJ in her responses to what were clearly kind of political gotcha questions, Mm -hmm. right? She responds technically and again, formalistically. She doesn't have these smooth retorts and ways that she responds to these questions. Yeah. Not everyone has that Kavanaugh charm, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So what Lithwick said is that, you know, what what KBJ cannot do, quote, with the icy calm of a lifelong political operative is offer up softball political answers to senators pointed political questions confronted time and again with tired and outdated questions about whether she is a judicial activist or a living constitutionalist. KBJ pivots to explain that she doesn't so much have a judicial philosophy as a judicial methodology. And when she attempts to lay out that three-part methodology, it doesn't precisely roll off her tongue in the same manner as cute metaphors about balls and strikes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what Lithwick is pointing out and and what I agree with is that, yeah, KBJ doesn't necessarily come with the fire with the with the quippiness of an Antonin Scalia right in her writing but has been doing the work of being a judge every day for years and so what she lacks in maybe this political charm and wittiness she backs up with real experience deciding complicated cases as a judge in the DC circuit you might also think that uh, the way she's presenting herself here is maybe a little more of an honest presentation that's right uh, of herself that's right than a polished facade yeah. right yes. that is like 30 years in the making I also wonder how much of that critique which I don't entirely disagree with but how much of it is really a critique of like the broader liberal legal establishment. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, it's true. It's difficult to outline the liberal legal philosophy. That's not Ketanji Brown Jackson's fault. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. That's closer to Dahlia Lithwick's fault if I had to blame someone. (laughs) Yeah, good point. Really good point. I do think this is both a cause for optimism and concern, right? Like she seems earnest and she seems... Like, we have an idea of what we're getting from her, and it's good. Yeah. But I do think, you know, we talk about this. It's a political sphere. It's political jockeying. Yeah. It's politics. And and so I'm not, like, ideologically opposed to having politically-minded people on the court, even politicians on the court, right. as opposed to judges. Like, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world if you put a career diplomat or, or a career politician on the court. If have a very different idea about power and maybe a a more realistic one than your run-of-the-mill coming up through legal channels uh, lib might. That being said, I thought in particular the McGann testifying case 
congressional subpoenas. I got the sense from it that she that she maybe has a good feel for the politics of, of this moment. And, and that is encouraging. Yeah. Whether or not she is practiced at the art of politics, right? The, right, the actual right. doing nuts and bolts of politics in front of a committee. I do think she, there, there's a chance that she understands the Republican Party in a way that will be extremely beneficial on the court. Yeah. Yeah. And to sort of tie this together at the end of the episode, I think what we're getting at is like what the court does need now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the reality is that there aren't going to be a lot of wins, you know, and maybe none mm-hmm. on like major hot button issues. Yeah. The court is still 6-3 at the end of the day. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the sort of jurisprudence designed to like maybe pull a vote or two over to your side, it's just not productive here. Mm-hmm. The thinking needs to be bigger picture. The goals need to be long term. It wasn't long ago that Thomas and Scalia were often writing these lonely dissents on key issues. Yeah. Aggressively outlining their view of the Constitution. Scalia openly said that the point wasn't to convince anyone on the court. It was to convince law students, right? And that's what happened. Conservative law students and academics were emboldened by seeing their views like proudly championed at the level of the court even if they weren't winning. And that translated over the course of a quarter century into a generation of conservative judges who tout those same hardline views loudly and proudly, right? Exactly, yep. Mm -hmm. Those dissents gave fringe right-wing views legitimacy, and it gave them a huge audience. And that's what we need on the left. What we need is what we haven't seen for 50 years, like a robust progressive vision of the law, something that will mobilize the left and challenge the right. Won't pay off right away, but the legal system that we see right now has been molded by conservatives, and it's time to start chipping away at the foundations. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see a justice who is actively trying to do that and knowingly trying to do that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I saw actually in an, in a Milheiser piece for Vox that he points out something that I think could be really interesting about KBJ's time on the court in that, yes, she is known for quite long, quite technical opinions. Many times she has written opinions that are over 100 pages long. She's taking into account all kinds of arguments that she's addressing, you know, kind of from all sides and how if she keeps up that habit on the Supreme Court, that could be really beneficial in that way to law students, to academics, to young lawyers who are looking for really well thought out, thorough, comprehensive arguments on liberal positions, right? If she takes that with her, if she takes that practice with her, like we said, she's not going to be sort of quippy and, and have this sort of political aesthetic, but it could be very beneficial for people learning about the law through dissents. Yeah. And if she doesn't do it, if she's not the one who puts forward a left vision of the law, then it's going to have to continue to be us. And that just can't be good for anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Next week, term preview. Terms kicking off, and we're going to do a little bit of a preview of some of the hot-button cases. A little snapshot of the tsunami coming right at your fucking face. It's going to be great. And we're going to bring on Hannah Mullen, 
basically just a bud of ours from Twitter who's a civil rights lawyer and quite like-minded. And it's a bit of a nepotism situation, uh, granddaughter of John Paul Stevens. So I'm trying to get my in with the Nantucket crowd. You know what I mean? <laughs> Start doing some favors. All right. Follow us on Twitter at 54pod. Thank you for subscribing. Feel free to hit up our new merch store, store.54pod.com. New designs up, discounts for premium members, and more merch coming, you know? Yeah. We're going to keep going. We're hustling. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin, and our assistant producer is Arlene Arevalo. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. I can't believe Leon let all this fly. We were like, all Republicans are pedophiles. Leon's like, yeah, you're in your prime. This is great. <laughs>